0: Turn in your copy of the scriptures, please, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, uh, you'll find today's text on page 331. <coughs> page 331 of the black Bibles that are provided there. This morning, we're going to consider the first approximately half of Psalm 139. Um, this was on the preaching schedule for next week, and as I was kind of studying ahead and th- thinking ahead, um, I really saw that there was a lot in this text of Scripture, and it would do us well to spend a couple weeks on it, and so I bumped it up, and we're actually going to do it in two parts now, and so we'll do the first half of Psalm 139 this week, the second half uh, next week, and uh, most of you know, if you've been with us, that what we're doing this year is each month of the year we are taking a psalm to focus on and uh, we're singing that psalm each week throughout that month and then at the end of the month we are doing an exposition of that psalm so that we uh, think through it together and it's on our mind throughout the entirety uh, of the month so it will do us, do us well. Uh, it also is good for us to be uh, obedient to the command in Colossians 3 to sing to yourself psalms which... Often in our modern American church, that command gets overlooked, and so we are taking some conscious, purposeful steps to be obedient to that, uh, especially this year. So Psalm 139, I'm going to read, if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to read aloud verses 1 through 12. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures, and then we'll ask for God's help, and then look at this passage of scripture. Psalm 139, this is the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm that reminds us of your attributes. I pray, Lord, now as we consider who you are, as is explained here by the psalmist, that you would be glorified, that our hearts would be lifted up to you in worship, and that You would change us through Your Word. We pray these things in Your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. I'll get that uh, remote from you there. Sorry. Psalm 139 is one of those classic passages that if you have been in church for any length of time, you have heard songs, you have heard this passage read, of script, read uh, many times, and it is a wonderful portrait of our God it teaches us, it reminds us that you and I are to worship God because of His infinite attributes. Worship God because of His infinite attributes. So this psalm expresses really some of God's premier attributes, some of the things that are, that are important for us to understand about God, and it does so in a beautiful, poetic way. But you'll notice in this psalm as well that God's attributes are not merely merely put on a dusty shelf to observe, that God's attributes in this passage don't stay theoretical. They they instead foster worship. They, They ignite within the heart of the psalmist and should ignite within our own heart a response of worship for who God is. God's attributes are not something for us merely to study, although we should study God's attributes. His attributes are not something merely to study, but to respond to in worship. And that is what we see the psalmist doing in the first six verses. The psalmist reminds us that God's omniscience means he knows everything about you. Because God is omniscient. He he knows everything about us. Now, omniscience is one of those kind of churchy words. It's a a theological word that describes omni, all, science, knowledge. God, God knows everything. And so theologians have gone through and extrapolated out what that means for God to know everything. God knows and has always known all things immediately and simultaneously think about that for a minute god knows all things immediately he doesn't have to scratch his head and think now i knew that and i've forgotten it now hang on let me think uh, okay now i remember he knows all things immediately he knows all things simultaneously god never learns. God never comes across new information. He knows all things simultaneously, and he knows all things effortlessly. He doesn't have to concentrate to figure something out, to come to a conclusion, to put facts together, to arrive at a new bit of knowledge. He knows all things effortlessly. He knows all things past. For eternity past, God was there, He was present, and He knows all things past. He knows all things present. Everything that is occurring right now around the world and and throughout the entire universe, God knows all things present. He knows all things future. He knows all that will ever happen. Not only that, but He knows all things actual, the things that actually did happen, the things that are actually are happening, the things that actually will happen. He knows all things actual, and he knows all things potential. He knows all the things that could happen, or could have happened, or could be happening. All right, so let me read that whole definition again. God knows and has always known all things immediately simultaneously, and effortlessly. He knows all things past, present, and future. He knows all things actual and potential. And when you think about what it really means for God to know everything, omniscience goes from this this little word that we've coined to a mind-boggling truth about God. And in verses 1 through 6, the psalmist worships God for his omniscience. So in verse 1, we see it. Search me, O God. Excuse me. You have searched me and known me. God, you, you have already explored everything. The word search here in verse 1 is the idea of to examine with tedious, or painful care. The Jewish people would use this Hebrew word to, to describe digging deep into a mine, or, or exploring a land, or, or investigating a legal case. You ever been to one of those, uh, those caves where they take you on the tour? Right? They take you down into the cave, and of course, there's all these signs, you know, you know, no trespassing, don't come in this cave. If you don't know what you're doing, you always have to be guided by someone because that cave has, has these crooks and crannies and branches and, and other caverns that it connects to and all of these things, and there has to be someone with you that knows the cave. And I would dare say probably that that person who's guiding you only knows a specific little portion of that cave. But there's, there's somebody who's mapped it out. There's somebody who's gone in there with equipment and they've, they've laid out the different, uh, the different paths that are available in that cave and the, and the ups and the downs and the, 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 the different places that you could go and the different places where there's trouble and where the water rises. And somebody, somebody has taken the time to, to learn that cave thoroughly and they are now fit to be a guide for others into that cave they have searched you hear these stories about these people who spend decades of their lives researching and investigating cold crimes cold cases right you know they they know every detail down to the very second of that night where that person was killed they know no what data we know. They know what data is missing. They know all of the different theories about what could have happened. They know it thoroughly. They have, they have searched the case. That's the word that is being used here. The psalmist says, you have searched me, Lord. You, you've got me mapped out you know every detail of me. You have searched me and you have known me. This word here, know, is a, is a thorough knowledge, an intimate knowledge, a, a, a special knowledge. In fact, if you know Hebrew culture, you know that this word was kind of used in a euphemistic way of a husband and wife being joined together physically. Now, it doesn't always have that connotation, but they, but they used it in that context by way of example because it spoke of a knowledge that was thorough, that was complete. God has thoroughly investigated us. He's, he's mapped us out. He knows all of the details about us. And this is what the psalmist is keying in on. David poetically lays out now the details of God's knowledge. It's not enough for him to stop and say, well, God knows me really, really well. He's searched me and known me, but then he goes on in verses 2 and following to, to give us blow by blow what that looks like. So in verse 2, he knows every action that we perform. Do you see that? You know my sitting down and my rising up. Now you think about that. How many times a day do you stand up and sit down? Well, I don't know. I don't keep track of it. I don't count that. I don't know. God does. He knows the smallest detail of your daily activities. You know when I stand up. You know when I sit down. Verse 3. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted, he says, see it there in verse 3, with all my ways. Everything that you and I do, God knows. Do you have any unconscious habits, you know, popping your knuckles or biting your nails or fidgeting, and you don't even know that you're doing it. He knows all your ways. He knows all my ways. Not only that, but look, look again with me at the last part of verse 2. He knows every thought that we think. You understand my thoughts afar off. Those seemingly distant thoughts, the, the, the fleeting thoughts that just kind of come and go, even the smallest of them, God knows. In verse 2, the word understand is used. It means to distinguish and discern with insight. Not just gather raw data, but to see insightfully. God knows every thought that we think. In verse 4, the psalmist explains that he knows Every word that we say. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before I even speak a word, God knows. When it is yet in in those formative thoughts and I'm still deciding whether I'm going to say something and what I'm going to say, God knows it. He knows it thoroughly and completely. He has us mapped out. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. But God's knowledge doesn't stop with just the fact that he knows us well. In fact, it doesn't even stop with the fact that he knows us better than we know ourselves. No, David actually goes on to point out that God's knowledge is greater than that, in that God knows what is best for us. And he guides us and he teaches us in accordance with that knowledge. Notice in verse 5 that he fences us in. All right? He says you have hedged me behind and before. He he hedges us. It's another another term meaning that he he puts those barriers around us or we might say he he fences us. Now we tend to think of fences as restrictive, right? And they are. But why do we put up fences? Well, we like to keep things in that are valuable. Right? You drive you drive out in the country and you you drive by a, a cattle field and you see all around that gigantic field a fence to keep the cattle in, to keep them where they belong. Well it costs a lot of money to put that fence up. Why do they do it? Because there's something valuable inside that fence. So it's cattle or it's or it's horses or or you may have a fence around your house to keep that dog in that you sometimes wonder if you want to get rid of. Right? But would you keep the fence? Because you've you spent all that money on that dog and on shots and on food and you don't want you don't want them running off. You know, sometimes you'll see neighborhoods advertised, right? You'll see you'll see new neighborhood going in, homes starting in the in the in the 350s and and it'll say on one of the little bullet points there right gated community ooh i get i get to live in a in a gated community right? what does that mean well that means there's something valuable in there there's something prestigious in there you live in this community right we put fences around things that we find valuable I mean, imagine if you got word that you're gonna you know you have now won a 15 million dollar estate in the hill country and you go drive out there to look at this new estate that you just won, what would you expect when you pull up the driveway? You would expect a gate and a fence around my... Okay, oh, you're like, I, this, I don't relate to this whole 15 million. I, neither do I. But, but the point is, if it's, a, if it's a, something of value in there, right, all the rich and famous, they've got, they've got fences and gates around their house. You know, fences are something that we think of restrictive, but the fact is fences protect that which is valuable. And so when God... When the psalmist says that God fences me in, when he, he hedges me in, God is doing that for our own good. You see, the worst thing, the, 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 the most profound harm that could come to us is God just letting us go free range. Right? God letting us have our own way is the worst thing that could happen to us. And so God's fences... Are for our protection right you do this with your children you you fence them in and I know young people you think those fences those restrictions those rules that my parents have on me well <sighs> it's restrictive and I don't like that and, and they must not love me no no a loving parent fences their children in sometimes their physical barriers when they're young And as they grow, there continue to be other barriers, rules, guards that are put in place. The New York Times just uh, released an article this last week describing how we arrived at, at the age of 13 being kind of the age of adulthood on the Internet. And it goes all the way back to a bill that was passed by Congress before social media even existed that was designed to protect the privacy of children. And so as this bill was being debated, they had to, they had to define what children means. And through a back-and-forth compromise, uh, they came to the age of 12 and younger as child. And from that point on, the Internet has seen 13 and above as somehow it's okay to just be you know, loose on the Internet. Well, if you're a wise parent, you recognize that that's foolishness, Right that there is a lot of dangerous things out there on the internet. By the way, parents, this has nothing to do with the text. This is a little sidebar here. Don't have, any, don't have unrestricted internet access for your children. Like you're leaving, like you're leaving snakes sitting around your house. Uh, put some fences there. Put some protections there. Put some barriers there. Right, because if we love something, we protect it, and that means hedging it in. Well, God's guidance sometimes comes in ways that we don't like. I I would like to drive wherever I want on this road, but God says, "Yeah, guardrail for your protection." Well, that's so restrictive. Yes, it is. (laughs) And so the psalmist actually rejoices in the fact that God has has hedged him. He has guarded him with, with these, these restrictions, these fences, these, these hedges. And then he goes on to say, and you have laid your hand upon me. When, in, when, the, when the Old Testament writers speak of God's hand being upon them, they're talking about the hand of strength and the hand of blessing from God. And so God not only knows about us, but then he, he leverages that knowledge for our own good, for our blessing, for our benefit. So you see, again, God's, God's attribute of His knowledge, His perfect and intimate knowledge of us, doesn't stop with a theoretical fact that, oh yeah, God knows a lot about me. Rather, it is for our own good. Hebrews 4, 4 says, "...there is no creature hidden from His sight." But all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom we must give, for whom to whom we must give an account. He knows our actions, He knows our locations, He knows our thoughts, He knows our words, our ways, our motives. So how do we react to that? And when we think about this thorough knowledge that God has of everything about us. When you think about the fact that God knows everything about you, how do you react to that? Well, here's how the psalmist reacted. He was overwhelmed. That's what he says in verse 6, isn't it? Verse 6. Such knowledge is what? It's too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is is simply overwhelmed with the knowledge that God has. I noted earlier that God's attributes don't stay in the theoretical. They foster worship. And so, likewise, God's attributes are not something for us to just study, but to respond to and worship. And, of course, this is the first such explosion of praise that the psalmist articulates for God and His knowledge. So I wonder this morning who knows you best? Who knows you really, really well? Your parents, your spouse, your children? Perhaps most would say, those, those of you that are married might say, my spouse knows me better than anybody else. We were playing a game um, with some folks in the church a couple, couple, I don't know, last week sometime. And uh, apples to apples, I got roped into playing that game. And basically, the gist, if you're not familiar with the game, the, the gist of it is there's one person who's kind of the judge, and it goes in rotation around the table, and then everybody else has to give what they think is the best answer. But in order to really win the game, you kind of got to get in, in the mind of the head of the person who is going to be evaluating which is the best answer. You get, you get the idea? All right, so, so guess who got the most points on my turns? My wife, because she could get in my head. Right. She knows kind of how I'm thinking. Who knows you the best? You say, it seems, you know, we've been married for a while now, and it almost seems like my, my spouse knows what I'm going to do before I even know what I'm going to do. That's, that's a, a measure of, of intimate knowledge. We think about whoever knows you the best, your, your children or your, your spouse or, or your parents, you know, the person that knows you the best, their knowledge of you, Their knowledge of you isn't even a fraction of God's knowledge of you. You can conceal a lot, even from the people who care about you, the people that know you well. You can hide, but from God you can't. God knows it all. And so this morning, I guess I would ask us, how do we respond to that? Because God knows everything about you. You can't deceive Him. You may be able to deceive others. You may be able to, to put on a, a good front and others think you're, you're doing well or saying well or, or acting right. And You can put on a happy face even when you're discouraged and, and you can put on a, a face that you're, you're living for the Lord when your heart is far from Him. But God knows. You can't deceive God. God knows your motives. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. He knows your fears. What is it that you fear this morning? Maybe there's something that you haven't even shared with other people. That, that, that deep fear that just wells up within your heart from time to time. You're afraid of a circumstance or, or the loss of something that is precious to you or, or some uh, thing in your life that will cause you harm. You're, you're afraid. What is that thing that no one else knows about? That deep fear. God knows. He knows your hopes, your dreams your aspirations. God knows those. What is the thing that you most long for? The thing that you most want? God knows. When we think about disguising the reality that is within from other people, another thought occurs to me. And that is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says, the heart is deceitful. Above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Our hearts are deceitful. Our, our, our inner man is, is deceitful. Sometimes, even to the extent that we can deceive ourselves. You know, have you ever um, you ever done you ever sinned? Said something. You did something, got angry, and, and, you, and after that was all over, you said, I can't believe I did that. Ever done that? I can't, I, just, I can't believe I did that. Guess what? God never looks down and says, I can't believe he did that. God knows. So we may even be surprised at times by our sin. But a biblical view is the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? Well, the answer is, of course, I can't even know my own heart fully, but God can. God knows. So with this kind of knowledge, the psalmist is overwhelmed. This is too, this is too high for me. This is too lofty a knowledge. I, I can't even begin to understand the depth of knowledge that God has about me, So if God knows so much, if he sees us so thoroughly, well, then perhaps the temptation is to run and hide. But that's of no avail either. Because not only does he see and know all, he is every place. And this is what the psalmist focuses on in verses 7 through 12. God's omnipresence means he's always with you. Omnipresence is just simply a word that means God is He's present in all places simultaneously and equally. He's everywhere. And so this is what we see here in verses 7 and following. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? So he presents this truth in a form of a question, this rhetorical question with an obvious answer that he is about to give again line by line in this poetic form the, uh, the, the reality that God is everywhere. So David uses several poetic devices. He drives home the point that even in the most extreme remote places, God is there. Watch it with me, please. Verse 8. Verse 8, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, the word is Sheol, can be translated the grave as well, uh, depending on the context. Behold, you are there. I mean, even these locations that we, we can't get to in this life. If I go to the furthest place away, the furthest place imaginable, God is there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, right, the sun rises in the east, the further, furthest most imaginable point to the east, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the meredith, The Mediterranean Sea was west of Israel. If I go as far west as I can imagine, you're there. Verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's strong arm, the the right arm, the right hand in Old Testament literature is emblematic of the strong hand because, of course, most people were right-handed. So they would think of that as their strong arm. And so that's the idea of of the right hand. Your right hand will hold me. God's, God's strength will be lent to me to protect me, the psalmist says as a child of God. No matter where the child of God goes, God is there watching over him. Verse 11 through 12 reminds us that the very thing that limits our seeing... Does not is not an escape. It's not some place that someone can go to hide, right? The darkness is what interferes with our seeing, but, but not with God. We cannot hide in the furthest geographic regions, nor can we hide in the darkness. Verse 11, surely the darkness. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light about me. That night, that, that dark is bright, is is bright daylight for God. Verse 12. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It's dark. It's light. It's irrelevant to God. He sees it all. Did you hear the story this week about um, the guy that the sheriff's office caught? So there was a rash of burglaries uh, up in Terra Vista, up on the north end, which is just outside the city. So the the sheriff's office was doing extra patrols in there, and one of the deputies was, was going through the neighborhood at night with his lights turned off so that uh, he could kind of sneak up on the bad guy. So he's cruising through the neighborhood, lights off, <coughs> and this knucklehead thief jumps out from the bushes, ski mask on, gun in hand, flagging down the deputy, thinking it was his buddy driving the getaway car. <laughs> so yeah bright bright fella right now why was he doing it at night i mean why was he casing the neighborhood at night because he thought he wouldn't be seen right i mean if, if, if somebody commits a crime during the day we're like man the gumption of that he did it in broad daylight because because thieves don't normally do that they, co- they they hide under the cover of night the psalmist says the light day doesn't matter. God sees it all. Light or, or darkness rather doesn't cover. As he continues to make this point that God is everywhere and sees everything. And so what is the relevance of that? Well, because he is constantly with you. You cannot escape him. Remember Jonah? I preached through Jonah a few a few uh I don't know a couple of years ago maybe. <laughs> um maybe more recent than that remember jonah he's he goes up the passage this text says several times he goes up from the presence of the lord and you can read that and, and you just see the irony there because jonah is trying to escape from a god who is everywhere and you look at that and you're like jonah not not so smart psalmist reminds us sometimes we think we've gotten someplace remote I think we've got someplace separate. We think we've gotten to the place where no one else sees us, but God is there. He knows us. Now, there is both a negative and a positive application to this, isn't there? When we think that no one else sees that link that we click on, we think that no one else sees how we fill out our tax form just a little bit inaccurately. We think, when we think that no one else sees us milking the clock or, or, or taking you know, a little bit of a time off while we're on the clock, when we think that no one else sees the thing that we do, God sees. God knows. God is watching. And so that should be a source of conviction to us, that although we think we're anonymous, We never are anonymous to God. God is always watching. That should remind us to do right, even when no one else is watching, because God sees. But there's also a comfort in that, isn't there? The very time that you feel most alone, the time that you feel most abandoned, the time that you feel like you have no friend in this world, God is there. He's not left us alone. He's not abandoned us. He's still there holding us with with the right hand of His strength. Maybe the valley that you're going through, maybe the darkness that you're going through, maybe the trial that you're going through seems to be a lonely one. And it feels like no one else is there and, and no one else can understand. There's no one that understands better than God. Who is always there with us, seeing everything and knowing our very most intimate inward thoughts and desires. And so, God's God's presence, His, His knowledge, is a source of conviction to us, but it is also a source of great comfort. And so, how do we respond to this this morning? Well, we respond as the psalmist responded. We worship Him. We thank Him for who He is. And as we'll see as the passage progresses next week, we, we respond and we yield to that reality of who God is. We, we yield to it. We surrender to it. We worship Him. I wonder how honest are you with God? God knows all. You're not going to deceive Him. But, but how willing are you to get honest with God about your struggles, about your hopes, About the sin that you're struggling with or do you and i fall into this foolish trap of of trying to deceive god like we try to deceive everyone else or are we honest do we bear our soul to him knowing that he already knows but welcoming this reality of his knowledge and presence in our lives and so this morning we ought to worship that worship is, is done in prayer and in surrender and confession. You and I this morning should worship God because of His infinite attributes. Lord, we thank You for what we have seen that is true of You in this passage of Scripture. We rejoice in the reality that You know all things, that You are always with us. Help us, Lord, to be thankful a- each day to be convicted when we do wrong, that we might quickly confess, repent of our sin, and turn back to you once again. But Lord, may we we also be thankful that you are a God who never leaves us, never forsakes us, never abandons us. We've been challenged through this passage to worship this morning, so I want to give you just a moment to pray, to bow your heart before the Lord, to confess sin.